So welcome back, Jessica. Third episode. Uh, today we're going to talk about China, and oh, I'm pretty excited about this. So Jessica, you can take you can take it from here. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be speaking on this. So I'll sort of speak to a couple of different points.、Um, I'll start off with. China,、um, and then go into a little bit more on my senior thesis、um, that I wrote on the impact of the 2008 financial crisis on China's development,、um, and then I'll talk、um, a little bit more on the context of 2012, which is kind of a more commonly believed turning point for China in terms of its attitude towards the rest of the world and its standing. In the overall world order,、um, and then also talk a little bit more on a couple other interesting aspects of China, like the real estate market and AI and、um, the startup scene there. So,、um, firstly,、um, a little bit more on China's economy. So. Obviously, it's technically labeled as a communist country, but、um, it's a really interesting kind of combination of two ends of the spectrum. I would say.、Um, I think most countries, obviously, the U.S. we label it as capitalist, but、um, of course, there are、um, certain non-capitalist、um, elements to it,、um, and, and same with you know pretty much every other economy. But I think China, the、um, business side of the economy, is very much. Um, kind of a pure capitalist economy, but then the kind of government side is very communist and very kind of controlling. Although they are very much pro economic growth and pro business and whatever means、um, they can have to achieve that. And so I think it's a really kind of interesting blend of of both those where、um, the government、um, wants to be able to. Create rules and incentives and regulations that support business growth, and objectively, that does lead to some form of capitalism. But then they also seek to have a lot of top-down control, and so that leads to kind of more communist elements. I think it's really interesting, kind of how、um, this very capitalist but also very communist、um, kind of two ends of a spectrum, but you know, in, in some ways, they sort of gel together to create. What currently is China, and so I think that's very fascinating. I think a couple, another interesting aspect of China is that、um, so obviously in the states we have you know of course different states, but in China there's obviously different provinces. I'm sure many of you know, but in the states. The states aren't competitive with each other. You know, if I'm the governor of New Jersey,、um, sure, maybe I'll look to New York for an example, but I won't sort of think that、um, you know my metrics or, or whatever kind of the growth in New Jersey or the X KPI, if you will, in New Jersey is going to land me any favors、um, when compared to a relative the relative. Metrics or the analogous metrics of New York or a different state, and so states aren't really competitive with each other、um, in the U.S. But in China, actually,、um, the provincial governors kind of operate almost as separate countries. Obviously, they're all part of China, but it's a super competitive dynamic to be able to win favor with、um, the overall、um, kind of political party, so the overall. Rulers, if you will, or governors or leaders of China, and so、um, provinces actually are incentivized to bargain with foreign entities separately, and they undercut each other in the process. So people often think that it's you know 
China is this one big country kind of working um, in unison because you have this super tight grip um, from the um, Xi Jinping or you know his people and they want what's best for themselves and so and obviously they have a really big economy and lots of natural resources and lots of this and that um, and so they're able to kind of have full leverage leverage in bargaining relationships with foreign companies that are trying to operate in China um, but actually obviously China still does have some leverage because it certainly has a lot of unique aspects um, but actually it's every province negotiating separately um, with um, each of these um, foreign companies. And so it actually becomes uh, a much more competitive dynamic that is in favor of foreign companies. So that's kind of interesting there. Um, so the second thing I'll talk about is the impact of the 2008 financial crisis and kind of why that differs from the narrative of 2012. So I think the common narrative that's out there, obviously everybody kind of knows that President Xi Jinping is the current um, president of China. Um, you know, he's been all over the news, I'm sure, around COVID and the trade war. Um, and basically the common narrative, both in and outside of China, and especially outside of China, is that he is, um, He's very kind of Maoist in many ways, and he wants to have a tight control over the Chinese economy. Um, and so that's why you had, you know, the troubles of the trade war and other kind of general sentiments um, in China of China wanting to kind of spurn international relations and be they rely on themselves. And so people always thought, you know, China was in a more collaborative mindset with, you know, joining the World Trade Organization and seemingly, you know, obviously going all the way back to Nixon and the opening of China. But, you know, ever since then, you know, really kind of moving, albeit gradually, but still moving towards the the ultimate goal of being very integrated and, and very much like a U.S. in many ways. And they think that 2012 is a turning point because, you know, this President Xi came on board and sort of reversed all of that. Um, but actually kind of what my thesis research shows and, and what I argue there um, is basically that it's actually the 2008 financial crisis that started this. Obviously, 2012 has had um, an impact, um, but it's really 2008 that drove China to consider turning more inward, um, more so than sort of any other any other kind of individual leader could. Because I think, you know, obviously President Xi is by law the president of China, but he can only do so much at the end of the day to truly change the hearts and minds of people. It's obviously hearts and minds are really up to the individuals themselves. And so I think what's really interesting is that she doesn't um, kind of hit people more towards the core um, in China. And so specifically what I mean by that is obviously 2008, as we know, is the global financial crisis. Um, but as we all probably know um, as well, that it was centered around um, the US and, and the West more broadly. And so yeah, China is of course in the East. And so it wasn't, you know, nearly um, you know, as impactful or negatively impactful um, on China. But the main way in which China was hit was through export relationships because all of the countries like the US um, and other parts of North America and Europe um, that China was initially exporting to for a while. And um, you know, those exports were certainly contributing a substantial amount to their overall GDP and their economic growth and the wealth that was being created you know, in the country. Um, that you know kind of all went away um, for the most part because of course the U.S. was hard hit by the financial crisis as was the rest of the West and so I think this was a major realization that China had that you know while we've been 
you know, after WTO, after the opening of China, before that, et cetera, we've been on this trend of, you know, opening ourselves up to the world, which we thought was good, um, but actually kind of the way in which we've approached it of, you know, opening ourselves through exports and kind of through these trading relationships um, with other countries has actually been harmful or, you know, it's been fine for, for so long, but when things are truly bad, it's actually quite harmful. And so we need to find other ways to grow our GDP, specifically reliant on ourselves and reliant on consumption and investment um, growth um, in the Chinese population. And I think um, a secondary effect as well was that China realized, I think for a while, China had just copied the U.S. in many ways, whether it was, you know, technology or business models or government structures. Um, you know, obviously the U.S. Is, is a democracy and capitalist society. And so China was trying to move more in that direction as well because they really looked up to the U.S. But I think that 2008 really shattered this perfect image that many Chinese people had of the U.S. Um, and, you know, it showed people in China that the U.S. was indeed fallible, um, as was, you know, basically any other country in the West um, that also sort of was a similar model um, in, in being democratic and in being capitalist to China. And so I think that was a turning point where China was like, wait, maybe these examples aren't necessarily so aspirational as we once thought, and maybe we should turn more inward on ourselves, and maybe we are kind of the best, or we could be the best, and, you know, what do these other countries know? And so I think there was some sentiment like that, and I think the data, as my thesis shows, um, you know, really points to that actually being the turning point versus 2012. Obviously, you know, much has happened since, and as a result of 2012, but 2008 was kind of a deeper shift, because as you can imagine, you know, somebody telling you to do X, Y, and Z um, is, can, can be impactful, but you know, what is more impactful is if you truly internalize a concept through personal experience, and that's what happened to um, you know, all businesses, all individuals, really from the ground up versus top down um, in China as a result of 2008, as we all know, kind of these grassroots movements that are super in sync and super comprehensive is much more effective than kind of any one individual at the top, um, you know, putting down particular sentiments or regulations. Um, so that's kind of um, the interesting aspect of 2008 and 2012. Um, so on the real estate market, I think what's really interesting there um, is, so as many people probably know, the Chinese real estate market is incredibly over levered and um, I haven't done analysis on it like relative to every other country in the world but I would you know venture to say and I'm sure people have done this so there's probably stats out there um, that it is one of the most levered ones in the world and I think there's a couple of factors that contribute to that so I think first of all so obviously China has locked its one one child policy um, over the past few years um, but of course it was you know definitely something that was very real for quite a while and even now you know technically it is not a law um, and, and, you know, there's sort of different caveats to it, but people, um, I think it's easy to change laws or easier at least, but it's much harder to change people's behaviors. And I think people have gotten used to and even sort of started to see the bright side and, um, you know, sort of operated under this one child policy rule. And so it's hard to suddenly get everybody to have more children, you know, children are great, but they're also very costly and, um, you know, kind of change the family dynamic. And so for a long time in any case, um, you know, regardless of what happens in the future, there's of course a lag from what's happened in the past, um, pre the past few years. And so what's happened there is obviously the one child policy has led to little emperor syndrome or, or some phrase like that, basically a really spoiled child because they're the only child. And 
um, their parents and both sets of grandparents are very attentive to them. Um, since they're usually the only child, obviously, for the parents and one of the only grandchildren um, for the grandparents. And um, as a result, when this emperor child, spoiled child, um, grows up and buys a home, um, it's actually not just him and his partner, um, or you know, her and her partner, um, buying the home, but rather it's seven people. So it's the child, his parent, his or her parents, as well as um, both sets of grandparents. And so um, it's really interesting, kind of how that plays into inflating prices. And you can totally see, even just anecdotally, how that's impacted things. So most people in the U.S. when they buy homes, it'll they'll lever up relative to their own um, net income for the year, like three or four times. Um, and that sounds aggressive, but in China, people will do that like 24 times over or 30 times over, or even 100 times over, which is um, you know, definitely much larger than three or four. And so it's really interesting kind of how much debt people are willing to take on depending on how many people are ultimately servicing that debt or making that down payment. And in the U.S., it's one people or max two people. Um, and in China, it's seven. So it makes a lot of difference. Um, and then the second um, aspect of this is that, you know, obviously in the U.S., um, we operate more or less under, you know, free market society. So if we see some kind of, or if we think at least that we see some kind of asset bubble creeping up, um, then we, uh, you know, have the opportunity to sort of say, okay, well, you know, as we've seen in history in 2008 and 2001 and dot-com crash, et cetera, um, you know, as we've seen in all these instances, what goes, you know, way too high above the intrinsic value of the asset must come down by market forces. But in China, there's this overwhelming belief in, in you know, perhaps university professors or you know, PhDs in economics might think differently, but the general public um, has this sort of social, implicit social contract um, with the government where, um, you know, they sort of just put their faith in the government and let the government do whatever they want as long as the government provides basic necessities for people. And that, of course, includes um, housing and income and, you know, not being bankrupt um, at the very least. And so people kind of have this expectation of the government and this trust as a result, um, it's sort of transactional trust in the government. And as a result, as a result people obviously see the home price is rising, but they don't actually believe that um, you know there will be a pop because they just think that no matter what, um, and obviously at certain levels it could be manageable for the government to swoop in, but they just believe 